0: Yeah, so what's interesting is that um, it's the American world order, but Americans have always been kind of ambivalent about actually leading it, because uh, doing all the things that we do to sustain the international order, uh, when we started doing it in the 1940s, it was sort of alien to the tradition of American statecraft. I mean, sort of the bumper sticker for American statecraft over the first 150 years had been no entangling alliances. So if you were Russia, for instance, you might not have liked NATO expansion during the 1990s, but there wasn't a heck of a lot you could do about it. That's changed over the past decade plus. So both Russia and China have rebuilt their national power. Uh, in certain ways, China's been experiencing exponential growth, uh, and along with significant growth with military capabilities. And so those countries are pushing back against the international order.
1: Hey, welcome back to another episode of the Modern War Institute podcast. I'm John Amble, Editorial Director at MWI, and in this episode, MWI's Jake Moraldi talks to Dr. Hal Brands. Dr. Brands is a Henry A. Kissinger Distinguished Professor of Global Affairs at Johns Hopkins School of Advanced International Studies. He is also the author of the book, American Grand Strategy in the Age of Trump. In the conversation we recorded for this podcast, he addresses a fundamental question. What exactly do we mean by the world order? And in a time when a lot of people might look at the world and see something of a mess, there's actually a lot going on that we can unpack and start to identify some really important patterns. It is a great discussion that we hope you'll enjoy, but before we get to it, just a couple really quick notes. First, we have some pretty big changes coming to the MWI website. We'll have even more great articles, podcast series, and some new things we'll be rolling out that we're really excited about. If you aren't yet following MWI on social media, find us on Twitter, Facebook, or LinkedIn so you don't miss anything. And second, as always, what you hear in this episode are the views of the participants and don't represent those of West Point, the Army, or any other agency of the U.S. government. All right, here's Jake Moraldi and Dr. Hal Brands.
2: Dr. Brands, thank you for coming and talking to us today. Thanks for having me. Uh, So I want to start out with a little bit of a, a framing question for our folks that maybe are not as attuned to some of the definitional things of, of grand strategy and, and understanding a term that gets bandied about a little bit, but I don't know if people have a full appreciation for what it means, um, and that's the international order. And, and what that means and, and what, how that came about, after World War II, just some basic background before we get into the discussion about what that looks like today.
0: Yeah, sure. So I think the the first thing to to keep in mind is that international order is older than the term international order. So international order is just kind of a catchphrase that became current in the last decade or so, uh, but. It, it basically just refers to the set of relationships and institutions and arrangements that structure the interactions between the players in the international uh, system. It's it's sort of the operating system for international affairs. And so there have been uh, international orders uh, going back to the ancient world and, and up to the present, and those international orders are usually shaped by the most powerful actors in the international system. and so. There was something like a Roman world order back in the days of the Roman uh, Empire. There was something like a British world order in in the days uh, when the British uh, Empire was at its peak uh, in the 18th and 19th centuries. Uh, And there's basically been an American world order, an American-led international order really since 1945. And when we talk about uh, the American world order, uh, we're really talking about an international system Uh, where the the democracies are geopolitically dominant over the autocracies, uh, where liberal economic uh, concepts prevail, that's that's liberal in sort of not the US domestic political sense of the term, but in sort of the classical sense of the term, so with a preference for uh, free trade uh, and and open markets, for instance, Uh, and where um, the promotion of human rights and democracy has, has been relatively prominent, and where the United States in particular plays a key role in holding the whole thing together and providing uh, peace and security in key regions of the world like East Asia, Europe, uh, and the Middle East, and uh, acting as the leader of the global economy and acting as the foremost advocate for the political concepts that we want to see uh, become prevalent around the world. And So that's sort of the, the, the liberal international order or the US-led international order in a nutshell. So in,
2: in kind of fleshing that out, the international order from uh, 1945 on, this sort of American international order. Um, the core tenets of that, as you said, are sort of the, the classical understanding of a liberal system where trade is good, interaction between peoples are, are good. Um, I'm curious if there have been some pushback just to get the other side of that international order uh, right during the Bush administration as war, the, the Cold War ended there was some pushbacks about a Pax Americana, I mean, the, the world police, and I'm curious sort of what your, your thoughts are on that before we get to the current state of the international order.
0: Yeah, so what's interesting is that um, it's the American world order, but Americans have always been kind of ambivalent about actually leading it because uh, doing all the things that we do to sustain the international order. Uh, when we started doing it in the 1940s, it, it was sort of alien to the tradition of American statecraft. I mean, sort of the bumper sticker for American statecraft over the first 150 years had been no entangling alliances, and we've concluded you know, alliances with over 30 countries around the world and quasi-alliances with another 30-plus. Uh, beyond that, uh, the United States has, has basically uh, done things that the founders never would have envisioned, like uh, essentially permanently stationing military forces forward in, in key regions of the world, um, taking an interest in the, the domestic political affairs of countries that we can't even find on a map, and, and so on and so forth. And so uh, there was a lot there was a big debate in the late 1940s and early 1950s about whether this was a task that the United States should undertake in the first place. Uh, and it wasn't really until the Korean War broke out that Americans decided that they were not only willing to uh, commit to supporting the international order but were willing to commit the resources, in particular in this case the military resources necessary to do that. And I would say at least once every decade or two since then there have been big debates over whether we want to continue in this role. So there was a debate uh, about that after the Vietnam War led to a lot of disillusion with American foreign policy there was a debate about it after the end of the Cold War, took away the threat that had initially motivated us to, to do all the things that we did. With the Soviet Union gone, I think a lot of Americans asked, why are we still doing so much in the world? And we're having another iteration of that debate today.
2: Yeah. I think that's a good segue, because we do hear in the news over the past three to five years, maybe, I feel like I've heard it more than than I had previously, a discussion about sort of the fraying of the international order that... The order that the United States set up after 1945 is starting to break down a bit, and I'm curious if what you see as some of the causes of that, where where that is occurring, are based on a little bit of that American ambivalence. Is it just another round of, as you said, sort of Americans reassessing our place in the world and our influence in the world, or if there are larger, uh, either systemic. Drivers of that or if there are individual personalities that drive that or what the kind of sum total of each of those influences are on the fraying system.
0: Yeah, that, that's a great question. and I, I like to think of the the causes of the fraying of the international order um, falling into two buckets. And so there's sort of the, the stuff that's happening in the world, the external bucket, and then the stuff that's happening within the United States in the internal bucket. Because what's happening is that the interna- international system is coming under pressure both from without and, and from within. And, and so if you want to start with the external factors, uh, I think we're seeing a handful of things that are challenging the international system that, that we created. And the most important of these is what's been referred to just as the return of great power competition. So for about 20 years after the Cold War, there were historically low levels of tension uh, and conflict and rivalry between the most powerful actors in the international system in part because a lot of those actors were actually allies of the United States, and in part because the ones that weren't, uh, countries like Russia and China, were were really too weak to challenge the international system in any meaningful way. And so if you were Russia, for instance, you might not have liked NATO expansion during the 1990s, but there wasn't a heck of a lot you could do about it. That's changed over the past decade plus. So both Russia and China have rebuilt their national power uh, in, in certain ways China's been experiencing exponential growth uh, along with significant growth of the military capabilities. And so those countries are pushing back against the international order. And, and sort of the question that arises is, well, why are they doing this? Isn't the international order good for everybody? This is kind of the way that we often talk about it. And, and the fact is that it, it's pretty good for us and, and for like-minded countries, but if you are an authoritarian state that wants to be dominant uh, in your neighborhood and you see uh, you know, the U.S. Navy as a barrier to that, then you may not like the international order so much. And so the Chinese and the Russians are basically trying to erode the international order at the edges so that they can have more influence uh, both within their respective regions and and more broadly. A second external thing that I think is worth um, pointing out is that uh, the dominance of democracy has has come under threat. uh, democracy really experienced just a phenomenal growth between about the mid-1970s and the year 2000. It went from there being about 35 democracies in the world to about 120 mm-hmm. democracies in the world over that period. If you go back even farther to World War II, the number of democracies in the world has increased tenfold since then. Uh, and, and so it really did look for a long time like the democratic model was just sort of incontestably ascended. But what's happened really since about 2005, 2006 is we've hit a democratic Recession. Authoritarian models are coming back, um, both both in countries uh, that didn't have sort of fully consolidated democracies before, but also in countries within the West that were thought to have had consolidated democracies, like Hungary, mm-hmm. uh, like like Poland, like Venezuela, uh, and and so it appears now that there's more ideological contestation with, within the system. And so, if you think that the international order has been premised on the dominance of liberal political concepts, then, then that's a problem. Mm-hmm. Um, just shifting to the internal causes, which I think are also um, um, really challenging, I think the basic issue is that, as we talked about a moment ago, you know, Americans are going through another round of doubt about whether they want to do this anymore. Um, because the international order that we have supported requires us to do fairly onerous things. I mean, you know, defense expenditure has to be higher than it would be if we were just worried about sort of defending the four corners of the, the United States. Sure. Uh, you know, we spend more in economic assistance than we would otherwise if we weren't worried about sort of influencing events in sub-Saharan Africa uh, or elsewhere. I think all those costs are well worth it, but, but they are costs nonetheless. And, and so what's happened, I think really what over the past 25 years but with increasing intensity over the past 5 to 10 years that Americans are asking whether it's worth it anymore. And in part, this is a reflection, just as I mentioned, of the Cold War ending. And so I think we've been searching for a rationale for the international order since then. The international order is one of these phrases that, that everybody says but nobody really understands. And so in the absence of a big overarching threat, why are we doing this stuff? Uh, we sort of got a respite from that after 9-11, but then the aftermath of 9-11 just sort of reinforced the ambivalence that Americans have. You had two long, frustrating wars in Iraq uh, and Afghanistan. And so even during the Obama years, you, you could see that there was increasing ambivalence about whether the United States should still be doing so much in the world. And obviously, that's, that's been turbocharged with, with the 2016 campaign and the rise of our current president, who I think manifests this ambivalence in a pretty significant way. And so when you put all those things together, you've got pressures from within and pressures from without. I think it's that combination that is making people so anxious about the future of the international order today.
2: So I'm curious to, to, to kind of follow up on part of what you talked about, which is looking at not only the, the, what I feel like has been called revisionist powers, right, the Russia and China trying to carve out uh, little chunks for themselves Uh, on the margins and now being able to potentially put themselves up uh, into that great power conflict. But seeing that not just as a regional conflict or a a quest for resources or um, the ability to project force out, but as much as those things, also sort of an ideological conflict, something that is an authoritarian versus democracy base conflict and you recently wrote something about this. Um, so can you comment on sort of the more ideological element of this because I think it's something that is certainly in my lifetime a little bit different than what maybe we've seen occur on the international stage.
0: Yeah, so, so the piece you refer to uh, is called Democracy Versus Authoritarianism, uh, Ideology and Great Power Competition. It was published in Survival about uh, in, in mid-September. and. The basic argument of the piece is that you know while we often think about the U.S. Russia and U.S. China competitions as you know struggles for spheres of influence or a struggle between uh, rising powers and the established power, there's also a really strong ideological dimension to these competitions, uh, and it manifests in in three different ways. Uh, it manifests first in the sense that. Uh, The fact that the United States is a liberal democracy and Russia and China are illiberal autocracies mean that we have different views of of what sort of uh, world is is just and desirable. The United States wants a world that is as full of democracies as possible because that's where we will be most secure and influential. Uh, Russia and China want a world that at the very least is safe for autocracy. Mm -hmm. And and so they, they really don't like this idea of a globalized liberal order. This, the second place it pops up is in the strategies that uh, Russia and China are pursuing. And so Russia and China uh, are not simply uh, seeking to gain geopolitical influence, although they're absolutely trying to do that. They, they are also trying to make a world in which authoritarian power in their own countries can be secure. And, and so they're doing this basically by trying to spread authoritarianism abroad and, and to weaken liberal democracy. And so this encompasses everything from you know, Russian meddling in U.S. and European elections, which is meant to basically discredit uh, democratic systems to Chinese support for authoritarian regimes in everywhere from Cambodia to Venezuela. Uh, and, and so both of these countries have, have been pushing an agenda in which they're trying to privilege authoritarian forms of rule over democratic forms of rule. And then the third place that this difference shows up is in what you might think of as competitive fitness. Right? So who, who's good at what in international relations? The authoritarian regimes tend to be good at things that require you to be sneaky, um, to to be secretive, to bring all elements of national power uh, together in a very cohesive way, because it's just easier to do that in in a system where there aren't a lot of checks and balances in place, where you're not constrained by law and democratic norms, as we are constrained. uh, And that's a good thing uh, in, in our society. Democracies tend to be better at what you might think of as some of the longer-term aspects mm-hmm. of competition. Democracies tend to be better, for instance, at um, building and maintaining uh, alliances, uh, because the the way that authoritarian powers behave at home tends to be kind of coercive and domineering. They tend to behave the same way abroad, and that makes it that makes it less attractive for other countries to ally with them. And there are other ways in which this manifests as well. But but essentially, the argument is that you can't understand. Um, how the U.S. And, and U.S.-Russia and U.S.-China competitions are manifesting and how they're playing out without appreciating the, the differences between authoritarian and democratic systems.
2: So obviously because we are on the, the side of the ideological struggle, we were just talking about who is sort of threatened, right? Our, the order that we established is, is a little bit threatened at this point. There are obviously risks associated with that to us as the ones who establish the international order as it currently exists. So what are the risks and what are some potential opportunities or what are some potential uh, points where maybe the international order needs some adjusting that a, a reset um, maybe is of use to us? Um, obviously the international order is in no way destined to change in a meaningful way based on uh, what's going on in the world at this moment, but it seems to be again fraying and heading in that direction. So are there risks and are there opportunities potentially to a change in the international order for us?
0: So I I think uh, unfortunately, just because the the current international order is so favorable to us, there are more risks than rewards in any major change in the order. And what I mean by that is that um, the past 70 years, the period since World War II, has arguably been the the best 70-year period in human history when it comes to things like avoiding war between the major powers, uh, when it comes to things like uh, spreading respect for democracy and human rights, when it comes to the advance of prosperity in the United States and and abroad. We've seen dramatic gains on on all of these uh, indices, and and so it's been a very, very favorable world order. And, of course, the United States has been the dominant power in the international system since 1945, and even more so since the end of the Cold War. So this is a system that has been uh, good for most of the world. Uh, It's been extremely good for us. And so the major danger is that if it somehow falls apart, or it's hollowed out from within, or if uh, the Russians and the Chinese succeed at eroding it around the edges, then we'll just have less of that peace, prosperity, and security than we've enjoyed for the past 70 years. And that, that would obviously be a very bad thing, but I think there are a couple of ways uh, in which you can identify opportunities, and and so one is that uh, while the international order has been very good for the United States, it certainly hasn't been perfect, and there are aspects of it that I think could be usefully uh, addressed, and and so the one example I I would give, uh, and this is actually an area where I would would give uh, the current administration sort of partial credit for addressing this, is the role of China within the international economy. And so the United States essentially uh, made a bet uh, back in the 1980s and 1990s that if we integrated China into the international economic order, that would push China to liberalize economically and that would eventually push China to liberalize politically. Mm -hmm. Uh, Now, what we've seen is that that hasn't happened to the degree that we thought. In fact, China has become very skilled at basically uh, grabbing the benefits of, of participation in the international economic order, taking advantage of access to our markets, for instance, without fully opening up in, in return. And so I think it was uh, correct to diagnose there being a problem in this respect, that, that, that we needed sort of a, a sharper-edged approach to dealing with China economically. And I think we're kind of um, fumbling and grasping our way towards that right now. We're, we're not quite there, but, but we're moving perhaps in, in the right direction. Um, There are also opportunities out there uh, with respect to deepening our relationships with other countries that I think have a lot invested in the current international Mm -hmm. order, but but that have not historically been particularly close to us. And and so just to give you um, two examples, uh, U.S. relations with both India and Vietnam have deepened considerably uh, going back a number of years and I think are going to deepen further in, in the years to come. Uh, India, even though it is a democracy, is a country from which we had been strategically estranged for a number of decades prior to the late 1990s and early 2000s. But what the Indians are increasingly realizing is that the Chinese threat to the international order is also a threat to Indian security and Indian influence. And so I think you're going to see closer cooperation between the United States and India in the years to come. Vietnam is by no stretch of the imagination a democracy. It's it's still a communist dictatorship, but but what the Vietnamese uh, ha, Have realized is that they've essentially liberalized their economy uh, and they want to maintain uh, Access to an open international economy. They want to maintain that their own uh, Domestic security and stability mm-hmm. and, and worry about whether they will be able to do that as, as China rises And so Vietnam has also drawn much closer to the United States So if you look around the globe there are a number of opportunities for us to to build newer or better or stronger relationships with countries that are also realizing how much they have at stake.
2: So as we restructure potentially some of our interactions within that international system, whether it's with individual countries like in India or Vietnam, that comes with a a resultant change in the way we use military forces and we project soft power and all, all those sorts of things. Uh, And I'm curious from an army perspective or from a military perspective, what does that mean in terms of the way that our military is likely to be used in the future, assuming that this reset or or change in the international order continues? Um, Is it something where what we see currently where we're deploying forces as a a hedge against Russian aggression in Eastern Europe continues to be a thing or escalates? how do you view that, that change to the way the army or the military gets used in the future?
0: So it, it it's hard to, to predict now more than usual just because uh, the current administration has taken such an unorthodox approach to thinking about some of our alliance commitments that you know I, I couldn't tell you for sure that the United States will still have 28,000 troops on the ground in South Korea a, de- a decade from now. Uh, in general though, um, I, I would say that that some you know, missions are, and, and roles are going to look kind of the same. So I, I think that, you know, the U.S. military in general, and the U.S. Army in particular, is going to continue to have uh, a big role in maintaining uh, deterrence and stability on the Korean Peninsula. That, that's that been the way it has been for a long, long time, and I think it will continue uh, that way. I, I think there are some areas in which um, we're seeing shifts. And, and so... I think there's going to be less uh, large-scale U.S. military involvement in the Middle East in in coming decades. This is something that that two administrations now have made clear that they want to work toward, and and it's hard because uh, we have ongoing operations in the region, we have a lot of equities in the region, and there's still a lot of threats in the region. But I think that the the idea that that first the Obama administration and then the, the Trump Pentagon have come to is that... If you're really facing renewed great power rivalry with Russia and China, there, there's simply a limit to how much uh, you can be leveraged in, in the Middle East, and and so with, with that in mind, I think if you're looking at Russia and China, you know these are obviously two very very different theaters so far as as the army is, is concerned, and so uh, in Eastern Europe there, there's a lot of sort of um, sort of tra- tra- traditional missions as far as the army is concerned in terms of of bulking up and strengthening deterrence. Uh, in the Baltic and in Eastern Europe. Uh, in the Pacific, it, it's quite different. But I think what you're seeing is that the, the army is being pushed to, to think about creative ways of bringing its capabilities to bear, you know, should we unfortunately find ourselves in some sort of confrontation with China. So whether that's you know, sinking ships with shore-based missiles, uh, and sort of long-range fires and that sort of thing, uh, or, or sort of developing US partnerships with countries in Southeast Asia, those are both incredibly important things in the context of a long-term competition with China.
2: So with that in mind, I always try and wind up the conversation here, because we are here at West Point, with talking about how this matters to cadets. Obviously, the, the cadets who graduate here in May are well, well, well below the level of the international order, but it, it obviously affects them. So I'm curious what your take on, if you could tell them how to use the information we talked about today, how, how they should process it and understand it and, and maybe use it in their careers. So I think
0: maybe the, the best uh, way of thinking about the international order and about the things we've been talking about here is that it might help you answer the question of you know, what, what are we doing here, right? So, so why are we being deployed to South Korea? Uh, why are we being deployed to the Baltic? You know, why, are, why are we showing up in these places uh, around the world that, that most Americans couldn't find on a map? Uh, and I, I think the the answer you come to is that the United States has played the critical role in stabilizing all of these areas and creating a climate in which um, market economics can thrive and in which democracy can thrive and in which we don't get a reemergence of the really nasty regional conflicts that can spread in the way that we've seen regional conflicts spread in the past. And, and so it can be kind of hard to, to draw that connection between um, you know, the deployment of a particular unit on the Korean Peninsula and sort of the broader international order. But but I think what this subject tells you is that all of these things are part of the larger U.S. commitment to maintaining uh, an international system in which we can be secure and, and prosperous. Because I think that that really was the fundamental judgment that underpinned the creation of the American world order in the first place. It was that the United States couldn't be... Uh, secure in a world that was ravaged by war. It couldn't be prosperous in a world that was afflicted by depression. And so we couldn't just sort of look at our security in narrow terms. We had to go out in the world and create a broader international environment that would be conducive to our security, to our prosperity, and to our ideals. Uh, and, and so that's what American diplomats are doing today when they are, are sent uh, uh, to Eastern Europe or are serving in the Asia-Pacific. That's what American military personnel are often doing uh, when they're deployed abroad as well.
2: All right. Well, that's a good place to end it. Dr. Brands, thank you for taking the time.
0: Thanks. It was a pleasure.
1: Hey, thanks again for listening to the MWI podcast. Before you go, remember that you can find and subscribe to the podcast on iTunes, Stitcher, or wherever you get your podcasts. And if you're enjoying the podcast, please take just a second and give us a rating or leave a review. It is the best way for us to reach new listeners. All right. Thanks again.